This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we have a visit from Nero Wolf, a fictional character, a brilliant, oversized, eccentric armchair detective created in 1934 by American mystery writer Rex Stout. Wolf has expensive tastes. He lives in a comfortable and luxurious New York City brownstone on the south side of West 35th Street. The brownstone has three floors plus a large basement with living quarters, a rooftop greenhouse also with living quarters, and a small elevator used most exclusively by Wolf. Other unique features include a timer-activated window-opening device that regulates the temperature in Wolf's bedroom, an alarm system that sounds a gong in Archie's room if someone approaches Wolf's bedroom door or windows, and climate-controlled plant rooms on the top floor. Wolf is a well-known amateur orchid grower and has 10,000 plants in the Brownstone's greenhouse. He employs three live-in staff to see to his needs. Archie Goodwin, his assistant, Fritz Brenner, his chef, and Theodore Horstman, the orchidist. The front door is equipped with a chain bolt and a bell that can be shut off as needed and a pane of one-way glass, which enables Archie to see who's on the stoop before deciding whether to open the door or not. The front room is used as a waiting area for visitors while Archie informs Wolf of their arrival and also as a place for Archie to hide one visitor from another. Now, let's go to this particular episode entitled, The Book of Tobit. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us about an exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective Sherlock Holmes. And now let's drop in on the good Dr. Watson, who's waiting for us in his California ranch house. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Foreman. Come in and, and make yourself a home. Thank you, Doctor. Sitting here with the lights off, I see. Have you been getting yourself in the mood for tonight's Sherlock Holmes story? No, my boy, I was watching the sunset. It's quite a beautiful tonight. I, Doctor, the sun set over an hour ago. Yes, I know that, young fellow, my lad, I know that. But at my age, a fellow's entitled to take a little snooze after dinner, isn't he? Of course he is, Doctor. And now that we've settled that, how about tonight's story? Well, a very beautiful girl figured prominently in this adventure, Mr. Foreman. Her name was Jasmine Lafleur. Huh? Say that again, Doctor, please. <laughs> I know, my boy, but that was her stage name. 
when she was a magician's assistant. Unfortunately, I never had the opportunity of seeing Jasmine Lafleur in the theater. But I'm told that she was a, a fascinating figure in tights and, and, and spangles. <laughs> when Holmes and I first met her, however, she was uh, dressed a little more conventionally. And her name was then Diana Venering. Lady Venering. Lady Venering? Say, those tights and spangles really paid off, didn't they? Well, how did you and Sherlock Holmes come to meet up with her, Doctor? In rather spectacular style, Mr. Foreman. Miss Lafleur became something of a femme fatale in the early 1900s. First of all, she married Signor Rossoni, the magician for whom she was working. On the wedding night, he was mysteriously stabbed to death. A few months later, Madame Rossoni, very fetching in her widow's weeds, I'm sure, met Sir Wilfred Venering. And, after a whirlwind courtship, she married him. Don't tell me he got murdered, too. He did, Mr. Foreman. Also on the night of the wedding. But this time, the police found a suspect. It was a certain Major Beckworth, cousin of the dead man, and an ardent suitor of the fair Diana. The trial at the Old Bailey was one of the most sensational I ever remember. Sherlock Holmes and I, in, in court on the closing day as a jury, were still considering their verdict. Holmes, the, the jury's been out over eight hours. I bet you they can't agree on a verdict and there'll be a new trial. I think not, old chap. Look, here they come now. You know, there's a strong moral probability of guilt, but I'm sure they'll agree that there's insufficient evidence to convict. Oh, perhaps you're right. Just look at Lady Venering down there ahead of us. What a, what a stunning woman. Yes, and a woman of great poise and courage. Here it comes. Gentlemen of the jury, have you arrived at a verdict? We have, my lord. How say you? Do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Exactly. Come on, Watson. Let's get a breath of fresh air. Well, I was wondering, perhaps, if we shouldn't go over and congratulate Lady Venering. On what? The fact that her husband's murderer has not been found? Oh, I suppose you're right. You ever read the book of Turbid, Watson? Turbid? I don't think so. When was it published? Well, a little before our time, old chap. It's an Old Testament story. <laughs> Whatever made you think of it at this moment? Well, it's so remarkably apposite with the case of Lady Fennering. It deals with a highly peculiar series of murders, seven of them, if I remember correctly. Who was the murderer? A jealous demon by the name of Asmodeus, who strangled husbands on their wedding nights. Well, judging by the verdict just now, Major Beckworth isn't the Asmodeus, or whatever you call him in this case. <laughs> Here, here, boy, here. Give me a paper. Thank you, Captain. Thank you, Well, Holmes, what does it say? Oh. Wait a minute. Here we are. Listen to this. Oh. Lady Venering, widow of the murdered man, says that she will marry the suspect. Lady Venering told newspaper reporters this afternoon that if Major Beckwith is acquitted... She will marry him before the year is out. From oh, my soul, Holmes, there's a positive sparkle in your eyes. You read about her. I must admit the lady fascinates me, old chap. I hope before she becomes involved in any further tragedies that we may have the opportunity of meeting her. And something tells me that we will. <laughs> Sunday papers are certainly having a field day over the veteran case, Holmes. <laughs> Did you read them? No, I didn't, Watson. There's a complete life history of Lady Venering in one of them with photographs. It's uh, rather interesting. Really? What are you doing over there, Holmes? Looking out of the window. Ah, yes, yes. 
You expecting anybody home? No, come over here, old fellow. Oh, it's, a, it's a clergyman. Yes, a very agitated one. Look at the way he's pacing up and down. And looking up at our window, too. By Joe, what eyes? Yes, there's a fanatical look about him, which suggests either the martyr at the stake or the inquisitor lighting the faggots. Mrs. Hudson's letting him in now. Well, I'll be interested to know what he's come to us about. I can hear footsteps on the stairs here. I'll, I'll go and have a look. How do you do, sir? Uh, come along in, won't you? It's all right, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. You're Mr. Sherlock Holmes? I am, sir, and this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. My name is Whalen, the Reverend Arthur Whalen. How do you do, How sir? How do you do, sir? Sit down, won't you, and uh, tell me what I can do for you. Well, thank you. Uh, Mr. Holmes, this... This is a very difficult subject to broach. In fact, it's only after intense personal conflict that I've been able to force myself to come to you. May I ask you, are you familiar with the Book of Tobit? Book of Tobit? Gracious me. You, you were talking about that yesterday, huh? I see that you've come to consult me about the Venering case. But that's amazing. How did you know? Has Lady Venering been in touch with you? Uh, no, sir, but uh, I'm familiar with the Book of Tobit, and Lady Venering's case closely resembles that of the woman Sarah in the Old Testament story. More closely than you realize, Mr. Holmes. Did you know that before each one of Lady Venering's husbands was killed, they received a threatening note? Yes, I recall that from the trial. Signed in some sort of gibberish, weren't they, sir? No, Doctor. Yesterday I was permitted, for the first time, to examine one of these notes. The apparent gibberish was, in reality, ancient Hebrew writing. Indeed. Were you able to translate it? Yes, Mr. Holmes. In effect, it said, If you go through with this marriage, your hours are numbered. And it was signed Asmodeus. Oh. The name of the jealous demon who strangled husbands in the book of Tobit. Exactly. Just why have you come to me, sir? I want you to talk to Diana, uh, <laughs> to Lady Venering, to tell her she must not go through with this new marriage. Murder is stalking her, Mr. Holmes. I have argued with her, prayed with her, implored her to realize her danger. But she is adamant. Ah, I'm afraid I should feel extremely presumptuous in giving her my advice. No, Mr. Holmes. I have prepared the way for you. You could, I'm sure, make her realize her danger. And she's willing to see me, you say? Willing and anxious. Oh, very well. But I'd like to ask you a few questions first. Anything, Mr. Holmes. What is your interest in her? She is, she's a member of my flock. She needs my guidance. Nothing further? No, no, Mr. Holmes. By the way, I believe that you uh, performed the marriage ceremony at both of her previous weddings. Yes. Are you proposing to officiate at the uh, ceremony if she marries Major Beckwith? Well, I... Uh, I don't know. I'm hoping that marriage will never take place. And so I want you to help me, Mr. Holmes. Hmm. Where does the lady live? 47, Barclay Square. Very well. Dr. Watson and I will call on her this afternoon. Yeah, delighted to. Delighted. I doubt if I can be there myself. In fact, Diana might speak more freely if I'm not. Yeah. But uh, here's my, my card. Oh, thank You'll you. will know where to get in touch with me if you want to. Very well, sir. Good day to you, gentlemen. And I, I'm greatly in your debt. Well, good day, sir. Good day. Strange business, Holmes. I, I can't believe that Mr. Whalen's motives are entirely impersonal. Nor can I, old chap. <laughs> hmm? <laughs> what are you laughing about? I was thinking of the Book of Tobit once. Huh? In that, the role of protector, the role I had just been asked to take, uh, was played by the Archangel Raphael. I can't help feeling, Watson, that I'm making distinct strides in my profession. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. 
I'm so glad to meet you. How do you do, Lady Venering? May I introduce my old friend, Dr. Watson? How are you, Dr. Watson? We're glad to meet you, Lady Venering. <laughs> uh, let's sit down, shall we? You're just in time for oh, tea. Thank you. Um, you know why we're here, of course. Oh, naturally. Mr. Whalen came round here as soon as he'd left you. Uh, you were to persuade me to look after my mortal affairs uh, while he takes care of my immortal ones. Isn't that it? He takes care of my charmingly put, Lady Venering. Charming. <laughs> uh, may I say, Mr. Holmes, that I'm flattered that a man of your eminence should be sufficiently interested to bother about You me. underestimate your own importance, Lady Venering. Though I may mention that if your problem had been as simple as Mr. Whaler made it out to be, I might have been otherwise engaged. You're being very frank and a little mysterious. Are you suggesting that Mr. Whalen didn't tell you everything? I am. And I hope you will be more candid with me. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, I like you. <laughs> You're most refreshing. Uh, milk and sugar in your tea? Uh, just milk, thank you. Here you are. How about you, Dr. Watson? Oh, just the same way, please. Hey, thank you, my dear. And now, Mr. Holmes, perhaps you'll tell me why you think that you haven't been told everything. Before I answer that, uh, Lady Venering, I wonder if I might ask you some questions. But of course. Anything. When your first husband, uh, Signor Rossoni, was killed, did the police find any suspects? Uh, yes, one. Ferdinand Gautier, a young man who had been an assistant in our magician's act. A stupid, good-looking boy who thought he was in love with me. But, of course, Inspector Lestrade had to release him. There was no evidence. Inspector Lestrade, well, you can bet that if he arrested him, <laughs> the boy was innocent. A warning note was found among your husband's effects, wasn't it? Yes, and it was signed in Hebrew with the name Asmodeus. Uh, but perhaps you're not familiar with the Book of Tobit. Oh, yes, yes, sir, I am. I'm familiar with it, Lady Venering. Uh, how did you know then that the Hebrew letter signified that name? Mr. Whelan translated them for me. Oh, I see. And also read me the Book of Tobit. Uh, he's always been particularly fond of that book. Perhaps because it illustrates his own ideas on the dangers of marriage. But Holmes, he told us that he hadn't seen one of the warning notes until yesterday. Precisely. Lady Venering, I read in the papers that you intend to marry Major Beckwith, the man who has just been tried for your late husband's murder. Yes, Mr. Holmes. When are you going to marry him, may I ask? When it pleases me. Doesn't it occur to you that... Uh, a great deal of comment will be caused. Also, that Major Beckwith's life is in obvious danger. Of course it occurs to me, my dear man. But because of two tragic marriages, am I to spend the rest of my life alone? As Mr. Whelan would have me do. I'm young, alive. Peter, what are you doing here? I just arrived back in England today, Diana. What's this I read about you marrying Beckwith? Peter, I have guests. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. This is Peter McComas. One of our most promising young painters. Diana, tell me it isn't true. When I left England, you loved me. And I, you. I come back and then what do I find? You're planning to marry Beckwith. Well, I won't stand for it. If you think you can throw me over like some silly boy, you're very much mistaken. I can tell things, you know. I can tell lots of things. Get out of here, Peter. Get out. Diana. And don't come back until you've learned manners and discretion. But, but Diana... Get out. <sighs> I'm sorry, gentlemen. Were there any more questions you wanted to ask me, Mr. Holmes? Uh, one, Lady Bennering. Uh, where is your fiancé, Major Beckwith? He's upstairs. 
Uh, I'm letting him stay here until the scandal of the trial has died down. I must see him at once. At once? Why, Holmes? He's in no danger until the marriage takes place? The marriage has taken place, Watson, unless what? I'm very much mistaken. What makes you think so, Mr. Holmes? You're much too discreet and intelligent, Lady Venering, to let him stay here in your house unless you were already married. <laughs> we were married this morning. But we planned to keep the fact a secret for a few months until the scandal had died down. May I talk to him, please? Of course. I'll ring for the butler and ask him to come down. May I ask, uh, madam, who married you? The Reverend Arthur Whelan, of course. Oh, and all the time he talked to us today, he knew perfectly well that this marriage had taken place. He must have just come from it. I don't trust that man, Holmes. Oh, there you are, Hudson. I just rang for you. Uh, will you ask Major Beckwith Excuse to... me, my lady. I, I was just on my way to telephone the police. The police? What do you mean? It's Major Beckwith, my lady. He's been stabbed to death in his bath. Major Beckwith murdered, too. Hudson... I'll telephone the police. By now, I'm rather well acquainted with Inspector Lestrade. Excuse me, gentlemen. What a dreadful business, Holmes. Her third husband murdered on his wedding day. But what a woman, Watson. She's superb, magnificent. What on earth do you mean, Holmes? What courage. What unconquerable spirit in the face of a fresh tragedy. Watson, she fascinates me. I haven't seen such a splendid female since we solved that case for the King of Bohemia. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure. The famous detective and his old friend Dr. Watson have become involved in the affairs of thrice-married Diana, one-time magician's assistant. Each of her husbands has been mysteriously murdered on his wedding day, the latest murder occurring on the same day that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are brought into the case. As we rejoin our story, it's a month later, and for some obscure reason, Sherlock Holmes seems to have lost interest in the case, though not in the beautiful Diana. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Lestrade? It's over a month now since Major Beckwith was murdered, and we haven't found a single clue to work on. Do you expect me to supply the deficiencies of Scotland Yard? Well, it's unlikely not to help us, Mr. Holmes. And after all, you and Dr. Watson were in the house when it happened. If you ask me, the murderer's either McComas, that Irish painter, or the clergyman, Wayland. What do you think, sir? As far as I'm concerned, the case is closed, Lestrade, and I wish you'd stop bothering me. What do you think I am, nothing but a detecting machine? Mr. Holmes, whatever's come over you... Holmes, you're not going out again this evening, are you? I'm afraid so, old chap. Well, this will be the fourth night in a row. I was hoping that we might have a nice, quiet evening in front of the fire. Oh, I'm sorry, Watson, but I promised to take Diana to the horse show at Olympia. I should be home by midnight. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Mr. Whelan? You're seeing altogether too much of Diana. She seems to be completely under your spell. But you introduced me to her in the first place with a request that I keep an eye on her. I made a great mistake. As her spiritual protector, I'm afraid I must ask you to stop seeing her. I'm afraid I must ask you, sir, to mind your own business. I say, Holmes, have you seen the paper that that violinist, the Zywe, is playing at the Albert Hall tonight? Uh, no, I haven't looked at the paper today. Oh, I thought perhaps we might go along and see Oh, I'm afraid I can't hold you up. No, I'm taking Diana to the French maid at Daly's Theatre. I hear it's a, a charming musical comedy. Look here, Holmes. 
We've been friends for a good many years now. Very true, old fellow. And I think I'm entitled to speak to you straight from the shoulder. Of course you are, Watson. Very well, then. This Diana Beckworth. Oh. Well, yes, it's your own business, I suppose, but I can't bear to see her making such a fool of you. You've neglected your work entirely since you met her. You get about as though a young fellow twenty. What's come over you, Holmes? Stop, stop pacing about, old chap, will you, and sit down. In fact, uh, it might be a good idea if you fortified yourself with a nip of brandy from the tantalus there. Uh, what I'm about to tell you uh, may be something of a shock. Um, Watson, uh, uh, Diana and I are getting married tomorrow. What did you say, Holmes? Um, I'm getting married tomorrow. But, uh... You're insane. Oh, that's not very flattering, Watson. Anyway, I don't see why you should be so surprised. You, you, you yourself married and left Baker Street once, didn't you? Well, you, Holmes, a confirmed woman. Oh, no, 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 my dear Watson. No, indeed, no. You will remember in our adventure that you titled A Scandal in Bohemia, I met a lady that I have often referred to as a, oh, the woman. You mean Irene Adler, but she was a criminal. Exactly, and yet Diana has the same magnificent characteristics. Keen intelligence, courage... An unconquerable spirit. But Holmes, three of her husbands murdered on their wedding nights. You're proposing to be the fourth. Oh, rubbish, my dear fellow, because tragedy has attended her previous marriages. Is she to go through life alone? Holmes, you... Uh, you really mean it, don't you? Of course I do. I think I will have a nip of brandy. Oh, don't take it so bad, old fellow. We'll continue to see a lot of each other. Diana's very fond of you, you know. Oh, well, I'm glad... Who's going to perform the ceremony? Not the... the Reverend Mr. Whaler. Oh, no, 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 no. We decided, in view of Diana's previous marriages, that he might prove to be a trifle, uh, well, uh, unlucky. A clergyman named Vernet will officiate. Whalen, of course, insists on being present just the same. Uh, what time is the wedding tomorrow? Two o'clock, old fellow. Oh, uh, I should have mentioned this before. I hope your cutaway coat and top hat are in a good state of preservation. You'll be a pretty prominent figure at the ceremony, you know. You mean that, uh, that... Well, I mean that uh, if Sherlock Holmes gets married, who else can be his best man but his old friend, Dr. Watson? It's elementary, my dear fellow, elementary. I now pronounce you men and wife. And those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. claim the privilege of the best man and <laughs> give you a kiss. Of course you shall, Doctor. It's you, Holmes. You're a lucky fuller. Of course I am, old chap. Uh, Sherlock, I'm going upstairs to change my dress now. Very well, Diana. I'll be up shortly. I'll see you later, Dr. Watson. Very well, Mrs. Holmes. <laughs> Holmes, I, I never thought I'd live to say that. Uh, what's no fellow? I'm worried. Worried today? Oh, my dear fellow, what, what's the matter? Well, just before the ceremony, I received one of those warning notes signed by Asmodeus. Oh, you better be careful, Holmes. I think I'll slip out and have a pipe or two on the matter. Yes. Look after my guests for me, will you? And keep your eyes open and your ears. Yes, I will indeed. Uh, there you are, Mr. Whelan. Would you care for a glass of champagne or a punch or something or other? Thank you, no, Doctor. I'm in no mood for celebration. I'm certain that Diana has made a shocking mistake. Well, really, sir, I don't think... I only came here in a last-minute attempt to dissuade her. Now that I've failed, I shall leave. Good day, sir. Yes, sir. Dr. Watson? Oh, hello, McCormick. Where's Mr. Holmes? We'll be back in a few minutes. Would you care for a glass of champagne, sir? 
Well, thank you. I should like to drink a toast to the pair. I've been in love with Diana for years, you know, but well, she wouldn't marry me, and well, I suppose I might as well make the best of it. I must say, your friend Sherlock Holmes seems like a splendid fellow. He is indeed, McComas. In fact, I may say... What? What? Excuse me, sir. All right, Holmes, I'm coming. Up here. What is the matter, Holmes? Follow me. Lock the door behind you. Allow me to introduce you to the demon Asmodeus, Watson. Unfortunately, at the moment, she's in a faint. Good Lord. It's Diana. Exactly. Always an impetuous woman, she made the mistake of trying to stab me with that knife. So I bent over to strap up a suitcase. She didn't allow for the wall mirror in which I was watching her. You mean you suspected her all along? Of course I did, old fellow. The problem was to find the proof. I first suspected her when I knew that she had been a magician's assistant. The key to the profession of magic is misdirection, and these murders have been a perfect example of misdirection of motive. How do you mean, Holmes? Well, by creating Asmodeus, thanks to the well-meaning stories of... Uh, the Reverend Mr. Whalen, from whose theological libraries she must have copied the Hebrew signature, she focused the murders on jealousy, concealing the fact that the one person with a perfect motive was herself, the widow who was to inherit. Oh, why hasn't she been caught before? Because she was clever, devilishly clever. She left no clues except an indirect one that I had once spotted, that the likeliest person to be able to approach a bridegroom unsuspected and stab him is his bride. Now, I wish you'd see if you can revive it, old fellow. When the police get here, I should like Mrs. Holmes to be in full possession of all her faculties. Well, Holmes, I must say I never expected to be driving back with you to Baker Street on your wedding day. <laughs> I can't tell you how happy I feel. Dear old Watson, you really thought that I deserted you, didn't you? Oh, naturally, I wish you'd tell me the truth, Why sir? couldn't tell anyone? Not even you. If the faintest shadow of suspicion had entered our mind, I'd never have caught her. Well, it seems to me you paid a pretty high price, Holmes. You told me you made a will in her favor. Supposing something happens to you before her trial, she'd get the money, you know. Oh, the will? Oh, no, that was worthless. I told Diana... That it was a holographic will and perfectly valid. Well, what on earth is a holographic will? Uh, a will drawn up in uh, one's own handwriting on a piece of perfectly plain paper. Such a document is quite legal, but I drew mine up on a paper with, uh, well, with a letterhead. That made it um, invalid. Oh, I see, but the fact remains that you are married, Holmes. <laughs> I, I really fooled you completely, didn't I, Watson? Uh, didn't the name of the clergyman who married us suggest anything to you? The Reverend Vernet? No, and why not should it? Well, Vernet was a French painter of some note. He also happens to have been a great uncle of mine and, um, you, Mycroft's. You mean that, that your brother Mycroft was a clergyman? I mean that Mycroft was disguised as a clergyman. And a very convincing job he did, too. A more satisfactory clergyman than the Reverend Mr. Whalen, no doubt, whose possible complicity may compel him to answer some very awkward questions. Then you're not married. <laughs> Upon myself, Holmes, I, I don't know what to say. Then I suggest that you say nothing, my dear chap. Let's just sit back quietly, as two good friends can, and brood about the uh, mutability of human affairs. Well, Doctor, tonight's adventure was really a little extraordinary, to say the least. Holmes sure had a narrow escape. A uh, doubly narrow, Mr. Foreman, doubly narrow. He not only escaped the, the jaws of death, but he also escaped the, the clutches of matrimony. Actually, the story had a happy ending for everybody but Lady Venering. 
Uh, uh, Jasmine Lafleur. What about that artist fellow, McComas? How did he take it? Oh, very well. Very well indeed. In fact, in gratitude, he even painted Holmes's portrait. Not exactly a good likeness, though. One of those modern artists who paints his impressions of a person rather than a portrait. What do you mean? Well, now, let me see. If he were to paint his impression of you, you'd probably end up by looking like a bottle of Petri wine in a sports jacket. Go ahead, Doctor. You can tease me all you want to, but I'll still rave about Petri wine. And why not? The facts bear me out that Petri wine most certainly is good wine. After all, the Petri family knows all there is to know about the art of turning plump, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. That's because they've been making wine for generations, ever since they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s. And because the making of Petri wine is a family affair, the family has been able to hand down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. And believe me, that adds up to plenty. So no matter what type of wine you prefer, one to serve with meals or a wine for any special occasion, choose one of the fine Petri wines. You can't miss because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what story do you have lined up for us next week? Well, now, let me see, Mr. Foreman. I'm going to tell you about, uh, about a strange adventure that began by my taking a wild cab ride through the moonlit streets of London and ended with Holmes and me being trapped in a luxuriously furnished cellar below a furniture warehouse down by the waterfront. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of Shoscombe Old Place. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. This is Bill Foreman saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Fibber McGee and Molly and the unusual request from Molly. Uh, she wants a budget. The Johnson Wax Program. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Marion and Jim Jordan as Fibber McGee and Molly. everybody. My, my, it's nice to be back. <laughs> well, it's nice to have you back, Molly. Well, what are you waiting for, Mr. Wilcox? I want to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Molly. We also have Donald Novis, the Four Notes, and Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Fine and Dandy. a sure way to banish your spring cleaning blues. Let Johnson's self-polishing glow coat put a grand shine on your floors and linoleum without any rubbing or buffing. There's no work to it at all, you know. 
You just pour the glow coat onto the clean floor, spread it around with a cloth or the long-handled applier, and in 20 minutes it dries to a beautiful glowing finish. Now there's a special sale at your dealers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat right now. You can get both the regular wax and glow coat in giant-size cans. When you buy a pound, you get a pound and one-third. When you buy a pint, you get a pint and one-third. Now this sale is for a limited time only. So if you want to get one-third more for the regular price, we suggest that you phone your dealer the first thing tomorrow morning or go to the store and ask for Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat in the special money-saving giant-size cans. As you all know by now, Molly is home again. And after looking over the household bills accumulated during her absence, she's a trifle flabbergasted. And here in the living room at 79 Westful Vista, we find the defendant and the plaintiff in the case of income versus outgo, Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> McGee, look at this milk bill. What on earth have you been doing, sprinkling the lawn with it? <laughs> that is a little high, ain't it? What say we get a cow? Why, who'd milk it? Oh, you got to milk them? <laughs> no, you just leave some empty bottles around the barn and then go out in the morning and rob the cow's nest. <laughs> Do you have to milk them? And how about this electric light bill? Oh, is that high too? Is it high? Well, look at it. Looks like the annual report of the TVA. <laughs> well, I was up late a couple of nights reading. You, you don't want me to be ignorant on current events, do you? <laughs> no, but what events have been worth this much current? <laughs> <laughs> now, look here, dearie. Answer the door. Okay. Insurance, man. 45 cents, please. 45 cents for insurance? McGee, what is this? Plate glass insurance on your diamond lodge pin? <laughs> now, listen, Molly, I took this out while you was gone. It's, it's great stuff. You see, for only 45 cents a week, you get a complete coverage on being struck by lightning, being lost at sea, and, and tell her the other features, bud. Oh, yes, do. Uh, well, madam, uh, this policy also covers you against capture by Chinese bandits, accidental injury from harpoons, uh, submarine collisions, runaway camels, falling pyramids, stratosphere sickness, and double indemnity for being bitten by a Mediterranean fruit fly. <laughs> Imagine that, Molly, all for 45 cents. I wanted a clause in there to cover us against being knocked out by the Sunday paper, but <laughs> that would have been another 10 cents a week. Well, oh, that's wonderful. Does it protect us against getting our fingers pinched in the encyclopedia? <laughs> no, madam, that would require a physical examination. No. <laughs> Shall I give him the 45 cents, Molly? Sure, give it to him. Then run out and round up a couple of Mediterranean fruit flies. <laughs> Hungry ones, mind you. Here you are, bud, 45 cents. Oh, thanks. You'll never regret this, folks. Why, just last week, one of our policyholders, a bellboy, collected $9.32 for getting his left ear caught in a keyhole. Well... <laughs> I suppose if there'd have been twin beds in the room, he'd have got double indemnity. <laughs> well, good day to you, sir. 
You don't think I was wrong taking out that policy, do you, Molly? Oh, no, McGee. It was a lovely stroke of business. In fact, we can put in a claim right away. Huh? Claim on what? Capture by Chinese bandits. Huh? Look at this laundry bill. <laughs> oh, I don't think that'd work, Molly. My shirts couldn't stand a physical examination. <laughs> they'd flunk the button analysis. <laughs> don't you get it, Molly? I said they'd flunk... Ah, ain't funny, McGee. Okay. <laughs> but now let's get down to business. We've got to work out a budget. I'll keep the books. Swell. I'll run downtown and get a set of books and a sample budget. Shouldn't cost more than two... I'll answer it, dearie. Okay. 79 Wistful Vista, Molly McGee speaking. To whom am I speaking with, please? Who? Mert who? Oh, oh that's Mert, the telephone operator, Molly. Uh, I'll talk to her. Oh, no, you won't. Huh? What was it you wanted, please? Mr. McGee is busy right now. Oh, I am not. He is, too. I mean, what? <laughs> oh, you'll call him later on. All right, dearie. Goodbye. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. McGee. Huh? Who's Mert? Mert, oh, oh, she's just a telephone operator. I, I never met her. Just talked to her on the phone. <laughs> just kidded with her and stuff like that there. I see. <laughs> Honest, Molly, don't you believe me? Wait a minute. Folks, them of you who've listened to our other shows, will you please write and tell Molly that I ain't ever seen this Mert? Tell her that I never oh. had it. All right, McGee, let it go. I believe you. Okay. But now, uh, speaking of operators, look at this telephone bill. Huh? $34. Can't Europe settle its own problems? <laughs> Did you have to call them up and give them advice? Huh? <laughs> what you mean, Molly? Why, we've got to cut down on using the telephone. Okay, let's have it taken out. I'll build a little coop up on the roof and we can use carrier pigeons. <laughs> you think their cooing would help our billing? <laughs> Ah, uh, you was always one to go to extremes. Now you run down and get some bookkeeping ledgers. Okay, I'll call a couple of taxi cabs right away. A couple of taxi cabs? Sure, I gotta come back, ain't I? Mm. Sometimes I doubt the necessity. <laughs> You'll take the streetcar. Okay, but that's false economy, Molly. It's a waste of time, and time is money. Go on, now it'll do you good to ride the streetcar and rub shoulders with the common people. <laughs> I guess you ain't rode on the streetcar lately, Molly. <laughs> It ain't your shoulders that gets rubbed. <laughs> well, I'll be back in a little while, and then we can start. Hello, Fibber. And hello, Molly. Oh, hi, Billy. Hello, Mr. Mills. How would you like to hear Don Nova sing, You're the Only One for Me? Oh, that would be nice. Isn't that the Irish number he had sung with Ronald Coleman in Bulldog Drummond? Yes, it is. Oh, Bulldog Drummond, eh? Well, take off his muzzle, Billy, and let him howl. I gotta run downtown and buy some bookkeeping stuff. Well, trot along, McGee. What are you waiting for? Oh, ain't you going to kiss me goodbye? Oh, <laughs> of course, dearie. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, uh, are you leaving too, Billy? No, he ain't. He's got to stay and play for Don. <laughs> Go ahead, fellas. You're the one for me. I am a plain-spoken fella. No flowery language is mine. A little uncouth, and to tell you the truth, poetry's not in me line. Still, let me try with a song to tell you what happened when you came along. I 
Yes, saw your smile as I passed you by, and I says to myself, says I, says I, there's the one, the only one for me. I caught a glimpse of a roguish eye, and I says to myself, says I, says I, there's the one, the only one for me. Oh, a poet might speak of the blush in your cheek as the bloom of a rose newly born. Your voice, the refrain of a song of the rain. In the light of a bright April morn I saw an angel from out the sky And I said to myself, says I, says I There's the one, the only one for me I'll not pretend you're the first one I've courted a lassie or two I've trifled a bit And quite frankly admit I have kissed more than a few I may have fibbed in me youth But this time, believe me, I'm telling the truth I saw your smile as I passed you by And I said to myself, says I, says I There's the one, the only one for me I caught a glimpse of a roguish eye And I said to myself, says I, says I There's the one, the only one for me it might speak of the blush in your cheek As the bloom of a rose newly born Your voice, the refrain of a song of the rain In the light of a bright April morn I saw an angel from out the sky And I said to myself, says I, says I There's the one, the only Am I standing on your foot? I don't know, mister. Jump up and down once. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's my foot. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey there, Johnny. Did I collect your fare? Oh, are you the conductor, old-timer? I ride for half fare, you know. Hey! I says I ride for half fare. This is a broadcast, and radio is still in its infancy. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, Johnny. But there ain't the... Hey, step four in the car, please. <laughs> How was I saying, Johnny? Oh, yes. That ain't the way I heard it. The way I heard it. Excuse me, conductor. May I please have a transfer? Uh, you won't need none, daughter. Just tell the other conductor that Joe sent you. <laughs> <clears throat> hey? Oh. <clears throat> uh, the way I heard it, Johnny. <laughs> One fellow says to the other feller, See, he says, this Joe Lewis does a lot of fighting, don't he? Yep, says Tuller Feller, he must get pretty tired of it. Why shouldn't he, says the first feller, to him life is just one round of fighting. <laughs> Let's you and me go to the next Lewis fight, Johnny, if you can spare a couple of minutes. Okay, old-timer, but I never seen anybody so intoxicated with price fighting as you. <laughs> You're practically punch drunk right now. Hey, here's where I get off, old-timer. Okay, Johnny, let the young fella see here, folks, one time. Whew, wish I'd have been born rich. 
To me, a streetcar ride is just a mob scene parted in the middle. (laughs) What's the joke, bud? Oh, nothing much. (laughs) I'm an artist. (laughs) You are, eh? One of your brushes tickling you? (laughs) No, no, I'm a modern artist. (laughs) I paint those screwy-looking things, you know. (laughs) Hey, they don't make any sense. (laughs) I know, but what's funny about that? (laughs) I just had an exhibition. (laughs) And somebody bought one of them, the darn fool. (laughs) I've always wondered which got framed the worst, the picture or the buyer. See, now, where'd be the best place to get a set of budget books? Oh, hello there, Fibber. Where are you bound? I'm looking for a bookstore or a stationery store, Harpo. Our bills have been too high, and I've got to get some books and make out a budget. Oh, say, that's a fine idea. I have a budget myself. Oh, you have? You got it with you? Sure, right here. Take a look at it. Oh, that's very interesting. What's this item here? Entertainment, 20 cents. Gee, that must have been quite a fling. <laughs> well, it was. The 20 cents was for car fare out to the Better Housekeeping Institute. Oh, so that's your idea of entertainment, the Better Housekeeping Institute. Is that the only toot you could think of? Listen, I have a swell time out there. Here it comes, folks. <laughs> Whenever I show them how easy it is to use Johnson's self-polishing glow coat, and particularly how they can save money right now by stocking up with those special giant size cans with the extra third free, why, nothing's too good for me. Why, they make me fudge or panucci or taffy apple or something. <laughs> you can see how much that saves on meals in my budget. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Why didn't you hide in the oven till morning so he could get your breakfast free, too? <laughs> well, I tried that a couple of times, but somebody always comes along and sticks a fork in me to see if I'm done. <laughs> well, watch that budget, Fibber. Remember, the close-fisted guy of today is the open-handed guy of tomorrow. So long, pal. <laughs> Old Rockefeller Wilcox. <laughs> Boy, does he budget. He saves so many pennies, the government buys up his old pockets for Indian reservations. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh, here's a stationery store. What can I do for you, Flytrap? Oh, hi, Boomer. You working here? Yes, having a special sale today on asbestos diaries for red-hot mamas. <laughs> oh, I don't know any red-hot mamas, Boomer. All I know is smolder women. <laughs> smolder women. That's very good, very good. little far-fetched, but you never were any judge of distance. <laughs> Listen, Boomer, you got any ledgers in here? I'm going to start a budget. Is that so? Fine thing, budget. Tried once myself, but I had trouble with my incidentals. Got them confused with the et ceteras and the miscellaneous. <laughs> well, what's the budget for, pinch poke? Business, household, or personal? All three. If business ain't better in our household, my wife's going to get personal. Ah, I see. How do I put those budget books? I have them right here somewhere. Let me look on these shelves. Interesting lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of junk. Budgets, budgets, budgets. Uh, here's a bottle of invisible ink for feminine correspondence. Nothing a girl cherishes like an old, faded love letter. Roll of blotting paper. Ever make a study of blotting paper? Very absorbing. Now, come on. Come on, let's see a budget. Oh, yes, certainly, certainly. Must have one here someplace. Let's see now. Here's some gold points for fountain pens. Knobby little nibs, aren't they? I'll take a handful. Might want to have a tooth filled. <laughs> What's this? Package of paper. Wonder how it got so dirty. That's carbon paper. Oh, so it is. So it is. 
Thought for a minute it was brunette stationery for blackmailing. <laughs> Here's an old computing machine. Might use that in your broadcast to add your libs. <laughs> well, well, imagine this. I found a budget book. <laughs> Very good one, too. Yours for only $3. Okay, here you are. Don't wrap it up. I gotta be going, Boomer. Yes, well, so have I. Here comes the owner. Might be a trifle embarrassing to explain what I'm doing behind this counter. Hey! Can you imagine that? And I thought he was working in there. <laughs> the crook. Well, let's see what's in this budget book anyway. Hmm, husband's clothing... Per year, $1,200. Say, that's great. I ought to get a nice outfit for that. Say, uh, buddy, uh, can you spare a time for a cup of coffee? <clears throat> Wait till I look at my budget, bud. Oh, yeah, charities per year, $350. Well, I might as well clear that up for the year. <laughs> Here's 100 bud. I'll meet you here tomorrow noon and give you the other 250 All right, but don't keep me waiting. I'm going to the races. <laughs> okay, bud. Now, let's see. Wife's clothing per year, $1,500. Boy, won't Molly be happy at that? <laughs> this is a wonderful book. See, I never thought we could do it. Well, how do you do, Mr. McGee? Oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, hi, Mrs. Uppington. Where are you going in such a hurry? Oh, I must get down to the caterers, Mr. McGee. You see, I'm giving a tea, and I must get some advice about the hors d'oeuvres. Oh. Why, do you know the anchovies I bought simply refused to respond to the curling iron? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Curling the anchovies, eh? Mm. <laughs> Some stuff. <laughs> How do you get the toothpicks into the little sausages, Uppy? With a bow and arrow? Oh, now, Mr. McGee, uh, I'm afraid you're twitting me, yeah. really. <laughs> I twitted myself with that one. <laughs> oh, and that reminds me, my, I'm so glad Mrs. McGee has returned. Do tell her to come to my tea on Wednesday. Just a simple homey affair. Only 60 or 70 people invited, you know. <laughs> oh, that sounds very chummy. <laughs> How are you holding it, at home or in the ale bowl? Oh, my, how very amusing. The ale bowl. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, it is, that ain't it. I can just see some old mug in a frock coat plunging around your left end with a piece of cake. <laughs> well, I'll tell Molly, Uppy, and much obliged. She'll be glad to get a free meal now on account of we're on a budget. Oh, really? My, oh, how yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I've been through that budgeting nuisance myself, you know. Even now, I often say to myself, Abigail, you naughty girl, not another string of pearls until next week. <laughs> we're so nice to have seen you again, Mr. McGee. Good day. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> not another string of pearls till next week. Wonder if she realizes how many oysters she's throwing out of work. <laughs> I'll see this budget book again. Allowance for... Hello, Fibber. Started your budget yet? I just got the book, Billy. You see? And we're going to come out a lot better than we thought. Oh, that's swell. Yeah, for instance, according to this book, we can spend $3,600 a year for groceries. And our grocery bill has never been over seven or 800 before. <laughs> that's quite a saving, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you ought to finish the year with a mighty nice little deficit. <laughs> I'll say so. And believe me, we ain't going to touch that deficit except in case of emergency. <laughs> well, where are you going now? Shopping. I'm, I'm going to buy our clothes for the whole year now and get it over with, see? This budget allows me $1,200 and Molly $1,500. Ah, that's more clothes than we ever had in our lives. That's wonderful, ain't it? And if it hadn't been for this little budget book, we'd have never been able to have done it. <laughs> well, can't you wait a minute? 
Hear the four notes sing the Y and War chant? No, I can't, Billy, but I got a lot of shopping to do, you know, but you go ahead and play it. Folks, the four notes singing the Hawaiian war chant. Take it, kids. There is an island in the blue Pacific. Those who have seen it say it is terrific. When the ladies walk along, you can hear them sing a song. How do you go eat up a lady? How and let me buy, will you? I, I gotta get into the house. You live around here? Sure I do, I betcha. Where? Hmm? I says, where? Where do you live? With my mama. Well, where does your mama live? With papa. <laughs> we all live there. Where? Hmm? I said, oh, shucks. We're right back where we started. Oh, have we been someplace? <laughs> no, we ain't. Well, then how can we be back? <laughs> That you could... Oh, forget it. What's your name, little girl? <laughs> Teeny. Oh, Teeny. Well, that's a cute name. Sure it is, I betcha. <laughs> Don't you live in that house on the corner? Oh, you mean the brown one with the brick porch? Yes. No. Oh. <laughs> hey, mister, you know what? No, what? Hmm? I says what? Did, did you see my pop at the playground last night? No, I didn't. What was your father doing at a kid's playground at night? Well, I bet you he was there, I bet you. Huh? He said so on the telephone this morning. He did? Yeah. He said, boy, we sure were swinging last night, weren't we, Charlie? <laughs> Where'd you say you live, little girl? Right over there. Oh, in that house? Mm-hmm. Oh, then you're, you're the little girl whose mama is... Say, I got some news for you, little girl. I met somebody downtown, and they told me you just got a new little baby sister. Oh, 
Honest? Yes, sir. Ain't that great? Oh, that's dandy, I bet yeah. I guess I gotta go now. Give me a push, will you, mister? Sure. Where are you going? I'm going down to the hospital and tell Mama. Gee, will she be surprised. Goodbye, mister. <laughs> But her mom will be surprised, all right. But I never knew a surprise party yet that the host didn't know about long beforehand. <laughs> See, where'd I put that budget book now before... Oh, yes. Hey, Molly, I done it. I got the budget book. And that ain't all. What? I done all our shopping for the whole year. Boy, is that a wonderful budget. What? 1500 bucks for your clothes? Yes. 1200 bucks for my clothes? Charity, 346 oh, 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 hold it, McGee, hold it. Calm down. <laughs> Heavenly day. Yeah, but look, Molly, look at this budget. It's marvelous. Quiet, Eagernuts. There's something funny here. Let me see that book. Okay, here. You see where it says about the charity? McGee. Huh? This budget is for an income of $20,000. Why, sure. What? It is? You mean I got to make 20000 this year to pay for all? Oh, well, what's the difference? I can handle it. I got the whole world ahead of me. <laughs> oh, you have, have you? Yeah. That isn't the world in front of you, dearie. What you mean? You're behind the eight ball. Oh, sorry. Forgive me for making a mistake and buying all that there silly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. We all make mistakes, dearie. But now, after this, don't be so extravagant. Well, I, I guess I have been at that. Yes. Yeah. Matter of fact, <laughs> that ain't all. What? <laughs> I got into a pretty stiff poker game the other night, too. <laughs> oh, why, that's terrible. Yeah. I won 13 bucks. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> Wilcox speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's self-polishing glow coat racing Wisconsin, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night we wrap up the week with Hopalong Cassidy, followed by George Burns and Gracie Allen. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.